Visualize being in a workshop setting where you're surrounded by people of all different identities, intersections, and privileges. You've been asked to represent where you fit on a wheel of power and privilege relative to the other people in the room. The exercise isn't designed to be shaming, but rather to support people in getting honest and to act as a catalyst towards restorative justice. So I do a lot of different workshops. This one in particular was on racialized identity and the intersections of identity. To summarize what we were doing in the workshop was we were asking participants to identify where they show up on a wheel of power and privilege that my team and I have created with centered identities in the middle, identities that are privileged, so like white, rich, property-owning, natural-born citizenship status of English as a first language here in the context of the United States, those kinds of things in the center. And then on the middle and outer rings, lesser privileged identities. That was David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris. About a year ago, David was leading a workshop on restorative justice, which is a regular part of his job as the founder of an educational nonprofit. But this time, something unexpected happened. In order to get the activity going, we asked people to identify where they show up. And then we were going to break down the activity, debrief it in affinity space. And we had some questions from folks who were of mixed racial identity. The affinity spaces were white folks, people of the global minority, and BIPOC folks, people of the global majority. And for most people who are mixed, many of them say like, all right, even though I'm biracial and white, the world sees me as a person of the global majority, so it makes sense for me to go in the global majority space. But there were people who were mixed who were white presenting and were having a really hard time trying to figure out where to go. There were a number of multiracial people in the room that day. Some of them could have passed for white in certain contexts, but they identified with their minority race. At the same time, they acknowledged that they moved through the world with privileges that others in the room did not. They may have appeared closer to the power center on account of their skin color, but their experiences and cultural identifiers weren't those of the privileged global majority. They didn't neatly fit in anywhere in the exercise. Not fitting in, or at least feeling like we don't fit in, like we're too much or not enough, isn't necessarily endemic to the mixed experience, but it is common. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a biracial journalist. And I'm Malcolm Burnley, a biracial journalist. This is the On Being Biracial podcast, where we explore the inherent diversity and shared experiences of people with multiracial backgrounds. David shared how he supported the multiracial participants that day, while at the same time honoring the intention of the exercise. Some people would say that because you're white presenting, that's the space that you should go in and just have those considerations. My invitation was for those folks to talk about their ideas together because there were a handful of them who were white presenting or at least lighter presenting, but still people of the global majority. And then I think the other approach that folks could take is you can join the BIPOC space, but make considerations about like the space that you might be taking up, right? We don't want to center your whiteness in a space for people of the global majority. And so what ended up happening is the people who were white and mixed ended up having their conversation together. For some of the mixed people in the room, standing squarely on the edges of the circle felt like a no-brainer. For others, the exercise felt muddled. One thing that's important to say here is that while there may be many commonalities amongst multiracial individuals, there can also be very different experiences on the basis of lots of factors, one of which is a person's proximity to whiteness. David shared how he supported the multiracial participants that day while honoring the intention of the exercise. Still, 
But it was just an interesting moment for me as somebody who is mixed but isn't white to think about like, oh, when we're facilitating these kinds of spaces, it's important to make sure that we take all of these intersections of identity into consideration. Well, you know what's so interesting about that is the framing of how you show up to me is a different kind of framing than how you identify. The framing of how do you show up in the world or how do other people see you, I think might be different than how a person sees themselves. True, right? And in the context of the workshop, right, it was a overall series of workshops about restorative justice and how we are people who can facilitate restorative justice processes. And right. So in the context of the workshop, we're asking people to think about the challenges and barriers their identity might have when they are doing that kind of work. And so even though you might feel a certain way, the way that you show up is something different. And you can articulate that to the people who you are facilitating for holding space with within the context of the conversation. But if I see a white skinned person with blonde hair and light eyes, it's very natural to think that they're white, right? And so as much as you might identify as a person of Latina descent, that's not what the world sees. And so what is the challenge there? What are the ways that you're going to navigate that situation? That's what we were talking about. But yeah, I definitely agree that identity and like perception aren't necessarily the same thing. While being multiracial can and often does pose certain challenges, many multiracial people have access to spaces that our monoracial counterparts may not. For instance, I'm a member of the National Association of Black Journalists, and I grew up participating in Black Books Galore, an organization that brought books by authors and illustrators of color to Black and brown readers. As a child, my white mom and I also belonged to an interracial parents and children's group, and I was integrated into my white family and lived in a predominantly white town, all while being raised, at least in part, first by a Black surrogate stepdad and later by a Black-identifying biracial stepdad. Similarly, I've been a part of Black affinity groups and a Black book club that means a lot to me. But I also went to well-resourced, predominantly white schools. And yet, at those schools, I didn't feel like I fit in or I was fully supported as a person of color. The sum of all the connections I've made throughout my life would not have been possible if I weren't Black and white. Malcolm, listening to you, I'm recognizing how important it is to honor all of the paradoxes and dichotomies that shape our lives, especially if we're attempting to make sense of experiences that fall between binaries. Or to acknowledge that sometimes these non-binary experiences don't fall into neat lines. For instance, feeling not black enough and too black, depending on the space I'm in, or not white enough or too white. And at the same time, Darylees, it's important to clarify that access to spaces is not synonymous with inclusion. Still, the privileges that come from the whiteness of our ancestors are essential to acknowledge. Studies have documented that lighter-skinned Blacks attain higher levels of education, higher incomes, and better employment prospects than their counterparts with darker skin. The same is also true among Hispanic and Latinx individuals. It sometimes feels to me like belonging is more accessible to those of us who hold more than one ancestral background, and it sometimes feels like it's more elusive. As we'll share throughout this episode, there are a lot of people who either figuratively or literally don't know where to stand on the wheel of power and privilege, or whose relationships to power and privilege change, depending on where they are in a given moment. It's only human to want to feel a sense of belonging. And sadly, the research shows that multiracial people are at a heightened risk for feelings of alienation and fragmentation. 
And those feelings have ramifications. According to the DBSA, Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, quote, while a sense of belonging and cultural identity is a protective factor for many single race individuals, people who identify as biracial or multiracial may not feel the same sense of acceptance as their single race counterparts. Because they don't fit neatly into any one group, people with a multiracial background often find themselves in between two or more cultural worlds. Right. And that can bring up a lot of identity questioning for people. Do we fit in everywhere, nowhere? Do we form our own groups? Do we belong in existing groups? If so, do we fully belong? And is there such a thing as partial belonging? Those are complicated questions, which become even more complicated when you consider that many biracial or multiracial people can be read as white in one situation and as a person of color in another. For these people, their relationship to power may be fluid and contextual, as opposed to fixed, which is something that's hard to understand for those who have never experienced it. People outside of that experience don't understand what it's like to walk into a room and, one, have people racially categorized, which happens constantly. Many white people never notice it because they're almost always Mm -hmm. in the majority, so they're not thinking about it. And many black people don't think about it in detail either. But when you're on the edge, on the margins, the idea of who you are is constantly in flux. That was author Matt Johnson, who's written several acclaimed graphic novels and books, including Loving Day, a fictional and funny account of the struggle to embrace being mixed race while holding on to one's blackness, which won the National Book Award in 2015. Matt grew up in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, where the book is set. These days, he identifies as a mixed black man. But for the first half of his life, he identified almost exclusively as Black. Because when I was growing up, if you said you were mixed, it was a way of distancing yourself from Blackness and a way of kind of passively endorsing white supremacy. So when people would say, no, I'm mixed, it was usually as an opportunity to distance themselves from the stigma of Blackness. I grew up at a point where I say I look white, I, I look Puerto Rican. As white as I looked, I was Black. And if I tried to identify as differently, I was rejecting Blackness. I can relate to that idea. I similarly identified as Black until I was in my mid-20s. Then I began to recognize that identifying solely as Black didn't accurately convey the life I've lived as someone who others read and therefore treat as ethnically ambiguous. Here's Matt again. To me, mixed is not a genetic thing. It's an experience. Although every person ought to be free to conceive of their own identity in whatever way feels accurate to them, race is a social construct. In determining our racial identities, people weigh various factors differently. For some, genetics play a larger role. For others, it's culture, community, or even color. There are many different elements that people take into consideration when making the choice to identify one way or another, or even differently in different contexts. While that's all very true and there are no uniform standards for racial identification, there are a lot of commonalities we found among those of us who identify as mixed, multiracial, or biracial. For instance, being on the receiving end of what are you questions, being in a room with people who have negative things to say about one of the racial identities we hold, feeling like we don't know where to stand or like we don't belong, or feeling like we belong in spaces we wouldn't have access to if we were only one race. One of the unfortunately very common experiences that come up for multiracial people is the experience of being someplace, feeling the gaze of others fixed on us, and feeling like we're simultaneously too much and not enough. One of the key components of race is how the larger community sees you. That's not just race, that's identity. Because you see the same issue coming up with the discussion about trans identity. So it's not enough to say this is who I am. 
It's not enough to have some people vehemently agree with him. People fight for a group understanding of identity. And so what you see now between trans activists and even like the TERFs who are more traditional feminists who are not aligning with the understanding of gender identity, a lot of it is a fight over that shared space that gets mm-hmm. to define them. Mm-hmm. If it didn't matter, they wouldn't be fighting. You know what I mean? And if it was as fixed as everybody thought, they would not be fighting. Exactly. You know, they're fighting because it's actually, that's a key part of identity is group understanding of what the identity is. You can walk into a room of just Black people and you will have multiple understandings of who you are and how you fit into that room. And each one will be vehement that you are Black. If you act like anything different, you are a sellout and you're running from who you are. We know who you are. You are not Black. It's offensive that you would even try to be Black. It's offensive to Black people who have to deal with every aspect of being Black just because you're who your parents were or whatever. And then all the spectrums in between. To reiterate, like any other identity group, multi-ethnic people are not monolithic. The experience Matt describes isn't universal to people of all multiracial backgrounds, or even to people of the exact same racial background as Matt or myself or Malcolm, because the Black-white experience does seem to carry a certain distinct ancestral legacy, at least in the United States. As we've referenced several times throughout this series, a Pew Research survey of multiracial Americans found that the majority of people who could be considered multiracial, those who have a parent or grandparent of another race, identified not as mixed, but with one racial category. The survey also found that the multiracial label was less common among people with a black ancestor compared to mixtures of other races. There's a lot of mixed people who are not racial ambiguous, and most of them don't give two shits about it in the black community. Like Nicole Hannah Jones amazing scholar and journalist. She doesn't really care about mixed issues. She walks in the room, nobody questions who she is. She doesn't have that ambiguity. Most of the people I know who are mixed and don't have an ambiguity, they don't really care about it because it doesn't really matter to them. It doesn't affect their lives. Although every mixed experience is unique, in a world where belonging can be elusive, for those whose experiences don't fit within culturally constructed binaries, many of us mixed people find ourselves operating between worlds, and feeling like we have to modify our behavior in order to fit in different spaces, essentially code switching. As Matt reminds us, code switching, which gets a lot of attention in conversations about race, is tied to something more universal. Everybody who's driving around with stickers on the back of their car is in part saying, this is who I am, and reaching out to other people along similar lines. With that in mind, it's not unusual, and it's not fake. I think people who don't think about this, they think yeah. about code switching with, you know, talking in different mm-hmm. ways. Success. They think about the way people choose to present and they think of it as being this artificial fake thing that's pathetic. They don't think about the ways that they actually do the exact same thing. We all code switch. Most people do not talk to their grandmother the same way they talk to their best friend. Most people dress in a way when you're picking like what type of jeans you want to buy. You're buying skinny jeans as opposed to big bootcut jeans. You're doing that. You're saying, this is who I am. These are my people. For me, that was it was kind of exciting. And I realized, oh, wow, if I do all these things, I have a better chance of being seen by my own people. I'm saying, oh, he's one of us. When I walk in a room, they're not going to tense up. They're going to look and say, oh, it's okay. He's one of us, literally. So that's there. And even today, like, I know I can signal to people who I am by the timbre of my voice and by the way I talk to them. And sometimes that's about connection. Sometimes that's about police officer, don't lock me up. And sometimes... That's just saying, hey, I see you and I I get your story because I have a similar story. 
and you can hear that. I might be dressed up like a upper class guy, whatever, and we're wearing a tux at some black tie event. But when I talk to some of the working class people there, I can drop in my tone that I actually came from a similar world. And that's not fake. That's just accessing a different part of yourself. Malcolm, there's an excerpt from your conversation with your brother, Ian, in which you say something that I think frames the internal contradiction that many of us multiracial people live with. I kind of always assumed, you know, that I like didn't fit in in certain spaces. And yeah, I feel like it's been hard to overcome that narrative, too. I felt like I've never known and still don't know to what degree my feelings of not fitting in have been a result of factors outside of myself and how much have had to do with my own internal assumptions. But conducting the interviews for this podcast helped me make sense of some of my own experiences. It was validating to discover how pervasive it was for multiracial people to feel like outsiders or to have a complicated relationship with belonging. I spoke with Ashanti Martin, the general manager of Word, the only black talk radio station in Philly. And full transparency, Word is a supporter of this podcast. They put out an early call for interviews and have helped spread the, pun intended, word about our nuanced conversation about race. We'll put links to their website and to the series of interviews you and I did in the show notes. But sorry, Malcolm, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, not at all. It was a great segue. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events and become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Anyway, here's Ashanti talking about her self-perception of where she fits in. I have to say, I definitely, and I still to this day, always feel like an outsider in just everything. I think of myself as an outsider. And then because you tend to feel like an outsider because you're mixed, you tend to do more outsider things and have more outsider tastes. Mm -hmm. I say you... Because again, like I have many friends who are multiracial and biracial. We all were into like a lot of, there are a lot of multicultural kids who are into sort of nerdy stuff or geeky yep. stuff or, yes. or whatever. You listen to the wrong kind of music. When I say the wrong kind, it's like when you're around certain people, like certain groups, whatever you're, you know, you might be with one group and it's whatever your that group is, you know, whether you're half black or half white or whatever. And you talk about, oh, I love the Smiths or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, who Who are you? What are you listening to? I'm listening to Death Cab for Cutie. Like what? And it's like, I get it, you know, because a lot of it is so far afield from like the culture I really grew up in. But again, like I said, one is I go back to I'm a member of the NTV generation, which exposed me to a lot of other cultures that made me feel like, oh, there's stuff out there that's not like this sort of binary that I'm living in that I don't really feel a part of either side. 
Lest you accuse any of those we spoke with, or Malcolm or myself, of slipping into the tragic mulatto trope, the sense of not belonging that Ashanti and others described can and often does also come with a lot of freedom, flexibility, and increased access. I grew up feeling sort of since I don't belong anywhere, like the world is my oyster. You know what I mean? I can adapt to any kind of culture or group or community because I'm like, I experienced a lot of cultural dexterity, I think, as a result of being biracial. Cultural dexterity is something John Blake also spoke about. John is a senior writer with CNN, and hearing him speak about his work brought up something I've long wondered about in my own journey into journalism. I can't help but think that maybe going through life as a multiracial person primed me for this career because it's allowed me to view stories in different ways. In some ways, I'm racially fluid. I do kind of toggle between identities, and I'm not even aware of it. Because first of all, think of it as a writer, as a journalist, you're detached. You train yourself to be detached from situation. And then you add to that, that I felt detached growing up because I wasn't, didn't really feel like I belong with white people, but I wasn't completely black. Being biracial and the adaptability that comes with it paid dividends in his professional career. But earlier in life, John was often targeted by his peers for not being black enough for his neighborhood in black Baltimore. He was singled out, even though his white mother, we should note, wasn't in his life until college. In the Black community, there's tremendous variety in how we look. Most Black people are racially mixed. So there were other light-skinned people in my community. So in some ways, I could pass. I, I was undercover. But when they would see me with my father in public, then the alarm bells would go off. My father was very dark. And they would see him, but they wouldn't see my mom. And my father made it worse because he would introduce us as, here are my little half-breed sons. So <laughs> he wasn't really introspective about race. So when they saw me and they saw my father, then we would get attacked. We would get physically attacked for having a white mom. We were fighting a lot. And I hated being called white boy, hunky. I remember vividly when we were getting in fights, kids would circle us and say, it's a fight is the fight between a N-I-G-G-R and a white. And I was the white. So that was the kind of environment I grew up in. Navigating the simultaneous experience of having more cultural dexterity while also sometimes feeling like we don't completely fit or like we're code switching or checking parts of ourselves at the door is something that came up in most or come to think of it in all of our conversations. Nurla El-Marzuki and Zain Hassanain, for example, who met through their connections to the Swana community and became fast friends, elected to sit down for a joint interview. The two of them shared about grappling with this phenomenon of fitting in while not fitting in. Zain is a music therapist and licensed professional counselor, and Nurla is a cultural and climate justice organizer with a long history of working in advocacy. Here's Nurla. For me, I've always felt like an outsider no matter where I am, but also a piece of myself. And so different parts of myself become apparent in different spaces. When I'm with my father, uh, started a mosque in Reading. And so that meant we were in the public eye a lot and stuff like that as a family. And so that community around the mosque, even though it's been very much cultivated by my father, I'm a part of it, but not a part of it at the same time. I can't show up in all of my facets in that space, or I don't feel like I can. And Are there any particular facets that you feel like you have to check at the door? Most of myself. <laughs> I just kind of show up and participate in 
the holidays. Before COVID, my father would have during the month of Ramadan, which we're in right now, every night a dinner at the mosque that was open to anyone. And so I would just show up. I show up very passively. Maybe that's that's the response to that. The sense of having to check parts of ourself at the door can come up in a lot of spaces, whether that's a place of worship, a school, a workplace, or even within a person's own family. Speaking of family, Malcolm, let's return to your conversation with your brother. Ian described the tension that can come from, on the one hand, having increased access, and on the other hand, experiencing either subtle or overt acts of exclusion. Can you talk a little bit about Ian's background, and then we can share some excerpts from your conversation? Yeah, I'd love to. In addition to being my brother, Ian Burnley is a filmmaker, artist, and educator. To continue this episode's theme of existing between worlds, he's partly based in New York and partly in Salt Lake City. Just for a sense of framing, Ian and I spent our early years surrounded by a lot of visible diversity, racial and otherwise, growing up in Staten Island. But by the time he'd entered middle school, we'd moved to a predominantly white suburb. I asked him about his relationship with belonging. I think it's always been elusive through my whole life. I have a diverse friend group, but I think that those moments of feeling at home or comfortable, they're often passing and it's never been fixed for me where I I have never sort of had a stable social circle that feels very comfortable for me. I have different social circles where I have artist friends, but I also have friends that don't do creative work that I spend time with. I have friends that come from a a range of different economic backgrounds and these sorts of things. I think some of that is a product of not feeling totally comfortable in one, one place or another and having to connect with people in slightly different ways over time in order to feel comfortable or at home. I relate a lot to what Ian described. The idea of fitting in everywhere without really feeling a strong sense of belonging has been a theme throughout my life. For instance, in high school, I was part of about six or seven different social groups, and I was popular and well-liked. I was captain of the volleyball team, invited to various parties, etc. But I never formed any deep emotional bonds. I never felt close to anyone. And in fact, other than some loose Facebook connections, I don't have a single friend left over from high school. I never attributed that to race And I still don't think it was solely due to race, but listening to Ian and some of the other interviews that we conducted this season, I can't help but wonder if my biracial identity was at least partly a factor in my experiences. Thanks for sharing that. I've always been a bit of a loner myself, and I'll bet race is at least partly responsible for that because of how pervasive the issue of not completely fitting in has been for me. Although, to be fair, some of that feeling of not fitting in or not measuring up can affect anyone of any underrepresented identity, which is among one of the many reasons why white supremacy, ableism, heteronormativity, and the like are so destructive. For any person that doesn't identify as part of the dominant or majority group, one's experience is very difficult. And like you said, it's it's always about measuring yourself in relation to who you perceive as being part of the the majority group or the dominant group. People of any marginalized identity are at risk for internalized isms and obias. That said, monoracial people more regularly see their racial mirrors, whereas we multiracial people may not. 
It makes sense the feelings of not fitting in can be more common among multiracial people because our options can be more limited or even if we fit in many places, it can feel like we only partially belong anywhere. Kat Dyson is a visual merchandiser and planner who has worked in a variety of different retail environments and didn't feel a strong sense of belonging until college. Before that, she struggled to assimilate within the different communities she grew up in as a result of having two parents of different races who were divorced. My goodness, I was so confused. Like, I had no idea what exactly I was supposed to do with each group of people. It's like I go to my dad's black church and I'm the lightest one there. And then I go to school and the whitest school ever. And everyone thinks that I'm the darkest person that they've ever seen. And it's like, no, but really there are other people. I promise. I guess as a kid, it was, it was very polarizing, but as I grow up, no, I just, I was cat. Like I was me. Like I, I like to think that I just had my own little universe because I did keep to myself, but no, thinking back on it, it's, it's absolutely confusing. When you get into those situations where you're too black for this group, too white for this group, and it really has nothing to do with who you are, it's just how you look. The confusion Kat described and the feelings of simultaneously being not enough and too much can come from a lot of factors, such as being with family members of one race or another and being the only one who is quote unquote different, or being in a school or social setting or workplace environment or at a cultural event or in any number of situations and feeling like the only multiracial person. The feeling of otherness can seem to originate from within, or on the basis of prior experiences, or because of how others react to and relate to us, or a combination. You know, Malcolm, this episode is making me think of how, when I was growing up, do you remember that old Sesame Street song, One of These Things is Not Like the Others? Remind me again. Okay, so the song One of These Things is Not Like the Other was one of the trademark songs for the popular children's TV show Sesame Street. During the song, an adult actor would present four items, three of which were alike and one of which was different. And the kids at home watching the show would try to guess by the time the song was over which thing didn't belong. And I remember there were times in my life when I felt like I was living that song out when I'd be around either my black friends or my white family members and I'd feel like I was different. And even though at the time that feeling of being separate often made me feel special, in retrospect, I can see that it was also really challenging as well. Okay, now I remember that, and I can relate to that experience. Looking back, a lot of experiences that at the time I didn't question or analyze made me feel like I existed between worlds, or like wherever I was, I was somehow, some way, an outsider. Even when I should have fit in, I felt like I didn't. That whole too much here, not enough there feeling. Which is why it's important for people to feel free to question their experiences of race and to make sense of their identities for themselves. I'm not saying we have to question our identities, but that for those of us who choose to do that introspection, it can be really helpful in enabling us to make sense of things that don't make sense outside of a larger context. Sarah Gaither is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Duke University. She spoke about her own understanding of herself as a white presenting biracial person who wants to belong among people who have black parentage and family members because that is part of her lineage. However, her life experiences will be different than those of a darker-skinned, more phenotypically biracial or Black-identifying person, and that can create obstacles to kinship. I don't live the same experience, and I think for people who are very white-presenting, if you white-pass, whatever is the terminology you want to use, I do think it's important for us to acknowledge the privilege that we have, right? Like, my life is easier. 
in a lot of ways, right? I don't get followed in stores. I'm still afraid when cops drive around just like other people, but I'm still going to have probably an easier time if I do get pulled over. Those are just my realities. And I think with me not acknowledging that and trying to be in these Black spaces would be stupid. And that's hurtful to them and their lived experience. Even though my dad has lived that experience and my grandparents and et cetera, it's not my experience. And so I'm very cognizant of the space that I take up and the space that others need for all of us to be able to coexist. Lisa Funderberg, a journalist and author who wrote the seminal book, Black, White, Other, spoke about how much she values her identity as a biracial person while at the same time recognizing the fraught nature of belonging, not just as someone who holds a non-binary racial identity, but as someone who lives a non-binary racial experience while being assumed to be white. While I am incredibly grateful for this life that has been handed to me, wherein I am by just from birth privileged to be multicultural, privileged to see that there's not just one way to do life or to be in the world, that there are multiple perspectives worth considering. I can't think of a greater gift to equip me to be human and to help me understand the importance of compassion and reflection. On the other hand, it has been very painful for me at times in my life to not be seen for the experience that's underneath my skin. And that comes from multiple directions. It includes, but is not exclusive to, being in groups of white people where racism bubbles up, where racist comments are made or ignorance comes before, and having to deal with that tension deciding what to say or not to say in the moment, what is a value, how to react, what to do. And conversely, it's painful for me not to be seen as a Black or biracial person in the sense that I feel affinity and love and connection and history with a group of people to whom I am sometimes invisible. I think this is a really good point to say, to make the point that I appreciate that my challenges are not as great as the many ways in which racism is enacted upon people. I totally appreciate that. I don't mean to make my pain of experiences of being misraced excluded. Someone saying something rude to me on the street because they think I'm white is very small in comparison to so much of the sickness of race that operates in our world. But it's still true. It's still my personal experience. It still makes me sad. It still pushes me outside of a group that I love being a part of. Lisa refers to herself as a quote-unquote stealth mulatto. It's a term that acknowledges her privilege while distancing herself from the misconception that she would ever actively try to pass as white. So passing suggests an intentional choice to go with the flow of your phenotype, of how people are going to see you, whoever they are in public, in the majority of our interactions in the street and public are with strangers who are making snap decisions about who they're talking to. And passing 
historically has been considered something that let's just stay with black white since that's my direct experience and base of knowledge was something that black people would choose to do in order to either gain some kind of advantage that was denied to them because of being black economically or socially personally emotionally to call myself as some people do white presenting white passing stealth mulatto whatever any of those iterations is a more nuanced way well it's nuanced if you know what it means yeah <laughs> it's a way of claiming black identity or mixed race identity as a personal experience as the truth of the lived life of a person of me but also simultaneously acknowledging the reality of how the world treats me and privileges in most cases me because of my melanin count and i think this is particular to my experience as this stealth mulatto as a melanin challenged mixed race person who loves and feels part of a black family how we look does impact how others perceive and even treat us multiracial people can feel welcomed and wanted by certain groups or the opposite solely on the basis of which race they look like which is why conversations about race and identity require different considerations for those of us who come from multiracial ancestry. Azaria Keys, Assistant Director, Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox School of Business at Temple University and a co-producer and host of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, along with yours truly, is a biracial Black woman. She shared about how she navigates her identity as someone who is part of the Black community and considers that her racial home, yet who recognizes her light-skinned privilege and knows that there are some Black people who may not completely accept her because she was born to and raised by a white mother. I feel like I'm always filling out my conversation around identity with other Black folks who don't know me. But because I work in the DEI space, I'm talking about race all the time. And I often, like, which I think we should all do, is I call it a personal experience in my examples and try to lead by examples in my actions. When I'm talking about myself and I say how I identify, sometimes I look around at the other Black people in the room, and I think that the reason it's been a struggle for me is this, and I've gotten to this place where I'm comfortable like owning this and having this conversation, which is when I'm around other Black people who are full Black, and by full Black, I don't necessarily think everyone, to a certain extent, is mixed with a little something, even if it's different African tribes that you are mixed with. When I say full Black, I mean like two Black parents as opposed to being biracial or multiracial. But when I speak to those individuals about my race, especially if they are more melanated than me, I felt like for the longest I couldn't own saying that I was Black because me just owning that and verbalizing that, does that make it seem like I'm ignoring the privilege I still have because I'm lighter complexion? So I'm now in a place where if any Black person wants to say that I've had Black people tell me I'm not Black. I've had Black people tell me I'm not Black enough. That's not usually the case. It's usually either you're Black or you're not Black. I've had, on the flip side, like one drop of Black and you're all Black. Like, you're Black. 
The labels we embrace and the racial category groups we identify with as people of mixed race ancestral backgrounds are often a way of signaling to the world how we like to be viewed. But those choices quickly bump up against other people's definitions and assumptions, which can get messy. You never know what a person's viewpoint is and how that person chooses to define blackness. But I am now in a place where I can say, if I ever get pushback from a black person, first off, I'm going to handle it with love because I also understand that for darker complexion black folks who might have that belief that a light-skinned biracial person isn't black, they're one, probably defining blackness a lot to do with the color of your skin. And then two, some of that I think is rooted in the trauma of colorism and shadism that still exists. And so I handle that conversation with love and care and I allow them to have their definition, but I also stand confident in mine because it doesn't take my experience. But I also then follow up and say, but if we want to have a conversation about colorism and shadism and how that plays a role in blackness and in being a biracial black person, I'm going to own my privilege. And I'm going to say, just like I expect white people to own their white privilege, I need to own my light skin privilege that I have. So it's a multi-layered conversation when I say that I am black. A little later in our interview, Azaria added this. It takes a different level of confidence to politely push back against the very people that you want to be a part of and who, who you are a part of. So it was it's one thing for me to talk to a white person about my race. Like, I don't really care. Like, what you say, you say, I'm too black, whatever. I don't care. But I want to be accepted by black people because I identify as being black. In some cases, when they haven't developed the capacity or the permission to own their identities in all spaces, or when they experience the pain of being pushed out of groups they see themselves as belonging to, People can react in ways that are destructive to themselves and others. Jordan Davis, who today identifies as mixed or multiracial and is an advocate for acceptance and inclusion, is a former white supremacist. It might be difficult to conceive of someone multiracial raised by a black identifying mother becoming part of neo-Nazi and white supremacist circles. At least it was for me. But Jordan told me about his early life pain of feeling ostracized by the black community. When I was starting to go to these summer day camps, like in my hometown of Berkeley, California, the one day camp that I went to had mainly black kids. And I was feeling that, okay, nice. I'm black too. And this feels great. And so let me try to blend in with my black brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. only to be met with racial hostility, which put me in a state of confusion because I do remember some girls uttering, oh, stupid white boy, this and that. And then I would say, excuse me, what are you talking about? I'm black too. And then they would say, no, you're not. So that left me in a huge state of confusion. And it just left me wondering what's going on. Now that's usually is around the time where I guess kids are really starting to develop a sense of racial consciousness. So since they were probably feeling that I looked just too different from them or that I was too fair skin or that my eyes were too blue for them, they were just considering me to be something else. How old were you at that point? That was during the summer of 2002. Okay. So I was just turning 10 years old during that time. What kind of lasting imprint do you think that left on you? A bit of a permanent one because... It was an incident like that, which ultimately led up to me being very white identifying during that time and even 
taking it to the extremes during my 20s by even becoming a part of neo-Nazi circles. Of course, we're not condoning that kind of reaction to ostracization or even citing those day camp experiences as the single cause of Jordan's racial self-hatred and denial. He told me that throughout high school, he experienced being bullied and rejected by his black peers and that his desperate desire to belong led him to seek refuge in whiteness until that became unsustainable too. The interview with Jordan was hard to hear, both because of the pain he experienced and the ideas he internalized, although to be clear, he denounces this line of thinking today. But I give you props, Darylise, for the way you interviewed Jordan, not judging his mistakes and coming from, as Azaria put it, a place of love and care. Well, certainly I don't agree with, and neither does Jordan anymore, how he filtered and interpreted his negative experiences. But talking to him, I kept thinking about the old adage that hurt people hurt people. Was the bullying physical, emotional, verbal? What did it consist of? All the above. Can you tell me about a specific incident that happened? So one incident was when a cousin of mine flat out called me the house N-word. So Mm. then that, of course, did not really sink well with me at all. And then there was also a, a political rally that I went to where I was pretty much called the same thing. And they were a group of Black guys who were really wanting to advocate a physical fight with me. So that in itself was already planting the wrong things in my head about even just Black men in particular. Jordan made drastic assumptions about race and racial groups based on formative early impressions. Then again, a lot of racism and xenophobia gets established that way. In college, Jordan began attending rallies, declared his allegiance to the white supremacy movement, and was active in online and in-person hate speech and propaganda spreading, before removing himself from that scene and distancing himself from his former friends, which he did in 2022. What made you make a shift in 2022? A lot. The hypocrisy that comes along with those groups, the fact that when you really start to get close to these people and you get to know them very well. They are not exactly what they are preaching. Three is that you're always going to have somebody in those circles who are going to make you feel very unwelcome, such as them saying that, oh, well, you're actually not really white. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to also get tired of the disrespect. And just due to the fact that you're not going to ever have any sense or even any kind of semblance of peace If you are just busy hating yourself or just hating an aspect of you that you can never change. So if you are now looking for peace, because long story short, peace is power. It's now going to get to a point where you're going to have to start embracing yourself, maybe developing the proper spirituality or emotional strength in order to work through whatever bad demons you're going through. Because again, self-hatred is a terrible demon that's going to chew you alive. And it's just now starting to become something that you're going to get tired of. So pretty much very early 2022, I made the effort to just renounce all of my former leanings, renounce my friends, disavow them, cut ties with them, and actually now work towards using my story to inspiring others like myself to see that you are enough just the way that you are and that peace is also going to be power. And if you can achieve those very things, then you will actually finally start feeling great about yourself that you were probably always trying to do when you were trying to quote unquote fit in. 
One of the things that struck me when it comes to Jordan's story, in addition to his point about internalized self-hatred, was how, for a while anyway, he did feel like he fit in within neo-Nazi circles, provided he was willing to follow certain rules, and never completely. Still, his story underscores the human need for belonging and how much we all crave the feeling of fitting in. We long to feel accepted, and we can do things at times that violate our values just to feel wanted. Something I'm still making sense of is how Jordan's story cut through a lot of my misconceptions about acceptance or lack of acceptance within the white supremacist movement. Some of them would be willing to accept you only if you're really going to be down with the cause 100%. You're going to have to alienate your friends, your family members, or anybody who is not going to support the direction you're choosing to go down. You're going to have to promote their propaganda, even put up banners for them, and even, hey, greet them with a white power. If you were to at least stick to those principles that they lay out, and if they're a little bit more on the liberal-minded spectrum when it comes to accepting a person who is mixed race, then you'll be accepted. But then again, what comes with a movement like that is going to come with a lot of division because then you're going to also have to deal with people who are going to purity spiral, which is Mm -hmm. basically them saying that even if you are 2% something else, you're not white. Do you feel like almost because of your mixed race heritage, you had to be even more supremacist to fit in? Exactly. People who looked like me, who were a part of those circles, had to be even more white power than the white guys themselves who were trying to dictate the rules during that time. While I found it really surprising that a multiracial person could find any sense of belonging within white supremacist spaces, especially someone who I'd consider to be visibly multiracial, the idea of becoming even more extreme in order to fit in made complete sense to me. While Jordan's story may be rare, it's not unheard of. There was a really powerful piece on NPR that came out in 2021, which we'll link to in the show notes, about the phenomenon of multiracial whiteness. This NPR piece pointed out that the chairman of the hate group, The Proud Boys, identifies as Afro-Cuban, and that one of the organizers of the pro-Trump extremist group, Stop the Steal, is Black and Arab. On the other hand, plenty of militant Black nationalists have been born to multiracial parents, although we want to be clear that we're not comparing any Black nationalist movement to the alt-right. Even the more misguided Black nationalist groups have promoted ideals that are equity-building and working to combat oppression, whereas white nationalism seeks to oppress. These things are complicated, and it all just goes to show how people can become so vehement about proving their identities that they want to eradicate those parts of themselves and those parts of others that don't fit in within their narratives of acceptability. And as abhorrent as hate is, I understand the desire to belong and to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And not just on the basis of race, or for that matter, on the basis of hate. Lisa has found belonging when coming together with others, either as a result of a common goal or a shared love. I have found belonging in many places, which I think is the gift of learning that humanity can be the driving connector beyond other categories. So that's one thing is just, I have found belonging with people who share some common quality of humanity. Some of my favorite places to be are in situations where the reason we're together is what unites us. So when I lived in New York, I was part of the Brooklyn Quilting Guild, and it was the most authentically diverse experience 
in any demographic direction you can imagine that I have ever been in. And it was everybody who liked to sew. The styles of quilts were different. The ages, the religions, the races, the everything was different, but we had joy in this coming together. So that was one of my favorite places. Lisa deliberately seeks out places and spaces that are inherently diverse because those are the spaces where she feels the greatest sense of belonging. I find comfort in heterogeneity. If you put me in a room and it's a bunch of different kinds of people, even if they're not my direct experience, I'm going to feel more comfortable than if I'm in a room with all one of people seemingly like me. And certainly it's funny because I am in some ways comfortable in a room of white people, but never really a hundred percent because I feel like my experience is different and it is different from theirs. That's not to say that we should always be seeking places where we feel that sense of belonging or that belonging ought to be our sole aim. There can be value in not fitting in, value in feeling like there's diversity of identity and like the goal isn't to assimilate. Exactly. Malcolm, let's return to your conversation with your brother, Ian. We develop a sense of self by relating to other people, really. And so I think being in a diverse space really allows you to have many different types of interactions and to find your your niche, your little the space you want to be in. But I do have to say, I think for better or worse, going through high school in particular in a town that was majority white, though it was really painful and difficult, I think it did prepare me for other experiences or prepare me to experience uncomfortable moments, to experience racism, to experience all these strange interactions that... Again, though painful and unpleasant and awful, I think actually maybe, I don't want to say it helped me, but it allowed me to deal with some other things later on that I would have been less prepared to, to deal with, I think. That's not to say that fitting in or not fitting in or being multiracial or not being multiracial are good or bad. These things are nuanced and multifaceted. Sometimes not feeling like we fit in can support people in developing greater empathy and creativity or becoming more dynamic but it can also come at a cost. Evan fong Jeroff is the Chinese-Cuban-Russian-Jewish-American creator of Chibanos, a Chinese-Cuban fusion sandwich shop and mixed-race space under development. He described how he simultaneously holds both realities, wanting to belong and acknowledging the value of not belonging, which ironically, or not, he described much the same way as he described simultaneously holding his racial identities. To clarify in advance, when he says it, Evan is speaking specifically about the experience of being multiracial. I think there are a lot of benefits to it. I think that being able to weave in and out of contexts and conversations, and hopefully I'm, I'm able to kind of connect with a really broad range of people, I think that's a good thing that I'm I'm proud of. But again, I, I think I mentioned too, it was connecting through speaking with a therapist where she asked me, she's like, but is there something you're giving up by trying to be everything to everyone? What does that ultimately mean for you and who you are? And I thought, wow, yeah, that's powerful because I'd spent so much time thinking about how to fit in into different contexts and to be a palatable leader who could be put in any different situation and and people have confidence that you'll know how to handle yourself you know there'll be a good conversation it'll be productive all those things but what is the the cost of all of that trying to fit in so i think that's yeah something i've thought a lot more about in the last couple of years 
I'm thinking about the times when I've been in all black spaces and heard people say things like, oh, you know how all white people are or all white people fill in the blank and how I always bristle at that. Or how, as she shared in her interview, my sister Tyla, who's more white presenting than I am, has been in seemingly all white or at least predominantly white spaces and heard disparaging comments made about black people. And that can happen with any racial demographics and mixtures. Here's a segment of Tyla and my conversation. I've been in a lot of spaces. Like I kind of mentioned that time in high school of this girl being like, well, no, you're not that. And like what that means, I think I've been in a lot of spaces where people say something thinking they're in a room with white people that they would never say in front of a person of color because they know that's not appropriate yet saying it because I'm there and they don't realize. Do you say anything in those situations? Oh, now. Yeah, totally. Totally. Now I feel empowered to when I was in high school, no, would have probably felt really uncomfortable and would have just not said anything, which is just as bad, if not worse. I can't think of too many instances, but I know when I think of instances, I feel guilt around that or something. Cause like that was my responsibility in that space to have said something. And I didn't. You really feel like it was your responsibility? A little bit, just cause it's just going to keep continuing. That's always my fear. If that's that person thinks that, right. They think it to be true and they're not willing to say it in front of people of color but they are still willing to express it. I don't know at what point will they be willing to say it in front of a person of color if they feel empowered enough to do so. That's scary. And I went to school with people because it was this private school, the school with people who have a lot of power and a lot of privilege. And that's like scary in hindsight. And I totally understand that a 16 year old feels uncomfortable saying that, especially a 16 year old who's on scholarship and a lot of financial aid. It's not going to be the one to like speak up in front of everyone. Who gets to take up space? Who has a responsibility to create spaces for others and or to advocate for them in their absence? And whose voice do we prioritize? These are all questions we began the episode with. While there are many common threads that we can use to find spaces of belonging and identity, and hopefully this podcast can provide even just a sliver of that for those listening who are of multiracial ancestry, it's essential to remember the inherent diversity that exists within any identity group. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To find out more, go to resolvephilly.org PJC. Evan spoke about how not fitting in can make it harder to find community, but at the same time, that doesn't make the need for belonging any less important. It's really hard to find that community and find yourself in the world and and where you fit in or where you don't and where you want to fit in and where you're okay not fitting in. I mean, I think that because it's coming from a place of either not fitting in or not feeling like I was fitting in, it made it easy to relate to different types of people. And I think that I've been in many different places where I haven't felt like I fit in or I felt like the other person or the odd man out in some way or another. So then to 
especially work with people who also don't feel like they fit in or they maybe have a different set of experiences. It feels easy for me to re- relate to them because I've felt that otherness in a variety of, of different ways. When used as a bridge to belonging, multiracial identity can support people in finding connections with others who may also have experienced similar feelings of exclusion. And finding our social, cultural, and identity mirrors really does matter because, as Evan frames it, I think it comes down to the universal human need for belonging and finding where you fit and finding other people who accept you and appreciate you for who you are and the experiences that you bring and just the concept that, that you're not alone. And I think that that's also been a thread through my life and learning more and more about mental health, especially over the last couple of years, just the concept of you're not alone, you belong. And so trying to find your community is really important. And I think at times if you're mixed race, it's hard to find that community because you don't quite fit in one or the other. But again, something that I've really found value in is there's value in those who don't fit in. So even if you and I have a different background of races, ethnicities, I automatically feel a connection because you know a lot of the same things that I've gone through just from a different angle or a different perspective. And I think that finding that commonality is is powerful. Finding that commonality has certainly been powerful for me. And even though I do still sometimes feel like I don't fit into many predetermined, predefined spaces, I don't feel in between worlds in the same way I did when I was younger. I feel like I have more safe spaces. Maybe that has to do with getting older or being more intentional about the connections I make and the spaces I occupy. Or it could be because the discourse around race is changing and making more space for non-binary identities. It's probably a lot of factors. Personally, while I feel like I've found partial belonging amidst different monoracial worlds, my hope is that if I were asked to find a place to stand, as we spoke about at the beginning of this episode, I'd feel like I had a place to go. And for what it's worth, this podcast has given me a greater feeling of commonality and a sense that the worlds of those of us whose experiences of race and ethnicity and culture are multifaceted can find support and solidarity in those in-between spaces. Thank you to those listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to check out the next five episodes and to like, review, and subscribe. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. Thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Kondo, our outstanding editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support, which made this project possible, and to Gene Son, their Director of Collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.